This is First Farragut United Methodist Church's podcast. Thank you for joining us as we begin a new series, A Church Built on Christ, based on the book of Ephesians. And now, here's Martha with our message. Good morning and grace and peace to you in the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we are gathered for worship this morning. My name is Martha. I am one of the pastors here, and I've been off for two weeks, so watch out. That's all I'm going to say is watch out. And I'm grateful for my good friend Richard and and longtime pastor here who filled in for the last couple of weeks. Um, I know you all were blessed by his presence and his message, as was I. I was joining in worship with you, although I was not physically here. If you are a guest with us for the first or second or maybe even third time and would like some information about First Farragut, we invite you to email to connect at ffumc.org. We will do our very best to answer any questions you may have. And there is also a gift for you out at, it might be hard to see that it's a desk because it's decorated right now, but out at the front desk in the main hallway, there is a gift for you. We invite you to stop by and and, um, let us us bless you with a gift. Um, And those of you who are here regularly, you know that our main hallway doesn't always look like it does this morning, but doesn't it look fun? We would like to give a special thank you to the Rainey family who um, have been fast and furiously and busily putting together our decorations for Summer Jam, which will begin this Sunday evening. It's sort of a vacation Bible school alternative, and so everyone is invited back here at 6 p.m. It's family oriented, so for kids who want to do some dancing and all sorts of fun, come on out. For those of you who love to see the children having a great time in worship, come on out. That's what it's for, and so we are excited about that this evening at 6 p.m. here in the Worship Center. Um, I invite you, if you will please, as we begin to worship, to stand and join me in a responsive call to worship. We are beginning a sermon series this Sunday on the book of Ephesians, and so this call to worship is actually based on Ephesians 1. So I invite you to join me in response. Lift up the gates of your soul, Open the closed doors of your mind that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The God of countless wonders, the God of endless grace. Bring all your joys and burdens and worship. We worship together. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing Amen. Invite you to sing and worship. As we go to God together in prayer, we want you to know that we don't want to pray for you or with you just on Sunday mornings. We want to pray throughout the week. So please let us know how we can be praying for you. Uh, Email your joys. It's not all just concerns. It's joys also to pray at ffumc.org, and and we will join you in prayer throughout the week. This prayer that we will pray is inspired by the rest of the first chapter of Ephesians, which we'll read some of those verses in just a minute. But this prayer is based on Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, that the Apostle Paul prayed on behalf of the church at Ephesus. So I invite you to go home and read the rest of Ephesians 1 when you get home today. Join your hearts and minds together as we go to God in prayer. O God who called forth creation, 
You who raised Jesus to new life. You who gave us the gift of the power of your Holy Spirit. It is to you and you alone that we offer worship and to whom we come in prayer. Lord God, we confess that often we consider only our needs, only our concerns, only our thoughts and our opinions as we worship and as we go about life. Forgive us, we ask, for being so selfish and short-sighted. Forgive us for not hearing the cries of those in need, for not fully grasping your work in the lives of others, even though their lives may not resemble our lives or our thoughts or ways. As Paul prayed in Ephesians for the spirit of wisdom, Lord, we ask, give us your wisdom. Give us wisdom that we may discern your ways, your path for our own lives. Give us your wisdom and reveal to us how we can show your love and extravagant grace to those whom we come in contact, where we shop, where we work, where we do sports, where we drive, where we go to school, where we live and move. May we show your love. Give us your wisdom in dealing with the injustices of the world. Give us your power, your courage to advocate for your justice, not our own understanding of it. Help us look for and see where your power and your presence are already at work in our own personal lives and in the communities around us and in the world. Lord, you called forth your church, the whole universal body of Christ, to be witnesses of your love and grace and forgive us, forgiveness. Make us a church worthy of that calling. Make us a church who dares to dream that you can do through us far more than we are ever able to dream or imagine. Give us hearts and compassion for each other as a community of faith. As we lift to you each other's concerns and needs, Lord, you know them, and we ask that you meet us where the need is greatest. Give us the courage to mean it when we pray your will be done. As we unite our voices together, saying the prayer that Jesus himself taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. <laughs> Give us this day our daily bread. <laughs> Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As I mentioned, we're beginning a sermon series, <clears throat> excuse me, on the book of Ephesians. So anytime you begin a sermon series on a specific book, it's always a good idea to begin in the beginning. Our scripture this morning is from the first chapter of Ephesians, and I have to warn you, pay attention. It's wordy, very wordy, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But these are words that the Apostle Paul opens up this letter to a church in Ephesus with. Pay close attention. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who are the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Some conversations are just a little bit too well-timed to be a coincidence. I had one of those conversations last week on vacation. Oftentimes when people find out I'm a pastor, one of two things usually happens. Awkward silence, followed by you could see the wheels turning in the person's mind trying to figure out how to get out of my presence, or a barrage of biblical, theological, and justice questions. This particular conversation was about questions. It was a conversation between a young 20-year-old and myself, and it went something like this. What's the purpose of church? And I believe by church, this person meant what's the purpose of what we call going to worship? What's the purpose of church? Why attend? She said that she and her boyfriend actually pray together, and she attends church somewhat regularly, but her boyfriend has no interest in it. And I said, well, he's not alone in his feelings. She went on to explain to me about his experience with the church. He grew up surrounded by people who went to church, but also condemned and, and were judgmental of folks, saying that if they did certain things, drinking, cursing, or whatever lifestyle it may be, then those people were going to hell. What he couldn't figure out is that the same people who said those things did those things and went to church. So in his mind, church at that point became all about just not going to hell. She said he also knows preachers who walk the straight and narrow on Sunday mornings, but the way they treat their families and society outside of Sunday morning just didn't add up. So he just says he doesn't want anything to do with that. 
And quite frankly, I don't blame the young man. What she was voicing in that conversation was just a, a general societal and cultural perspective of church. What's the point? That question is not unique to that young man. The conversation sort of came full circle, and it boiled down to this. The question was, can I do this faith journey alone? Especially if, like that young man, my experience is that the church is a bunch of hypocritical, opinionated, judgmental grumps. More and more research is showing that people are leaving the church. This was pre-pandemic. Y'all don't need me to spout off some statistics. You've heard me say them before. It's happening. Even before the pandemic. After the pandemic or in the midst of a pandemic, the, the exodus of the church increased for many reasons. And some of us just got out of the habit and wonder ourselves, what's the point? Why are we here? What's our purpose? What's the goal? How are we supposed to do this thing called church? Well, guess what? We're not. God is. God is the doer. We simply join in what God is already doing. I've reflected a lot on that conversation between that young woman and myself last week. It actually happened, I think, on Monday of last week, and I knew we were starting this series today. The book of Ephesians actually answers some of those fundamental questions. The questions of what the church is. How are we to be the church and then do church? Notice I said be before we do. We'll get to that long-winded passage that we read try to unpack it a little bit, but before we do that, we need to situate ourselves a little bit in the context of this book we call Ephesians and sort of the grand sweep of God's story and how Ephesians fits in that. If you were to take your Bible or your Bible app, I have one of those too, and turn about three-fourths of the way through, if I can get there, you find what we call the New Testament. It's the part of the Bible that begins with the birth of Jesus. In that section, there are four books that tell about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, followed by another book called Acts, which is sort of the, the cliff notes of what happened after Jesus' resurrection. It begins with the day we call Pentecost, the day in which God sent the Holy Spirit to indwell, to live among the followers of Jesus. This was after his resurrection. We celebrated Pentecost Three weeks ago, I've been out, so I'm a, little, I'm a little off. We celebrated Pentecost three weeks ago. And for those of you liturgical police who realize we're supposed to have green as our liturgical color right now, the reason we don't is because we do ourselves a great disservice when we focus on the Holy Spirit one day a year. Because what happened after Pentecost Sunday was the power of the Holy Spirit swept through the world and church plants began to start all across the Greco-Roman world, Asia, Africa, and moving into Europe. One of those church plants is called Ephesus. It's a town in, it was a city across, sorry to say across the street, across the Mediterranean Sea in modern-day Turkey. 
We first see Ephesus in Acts 18 when there's a man by the name of Apollos who for whatever reason went to this city in Ephesus and began to teach people about Jesus. And he basically planted a church. It started with about 12 people. Somewhere along the way, the Apostle Paul, who we call Paul, heard about this church in Ephesus and eventually he went to visit Ephesus. Now, after the book of Acts, the rest of the Bible contains what we call letters or epistles. Most of them, 13 of them, we believe, were written by Paul to specific churches, specific church plants throughout the Greco-Roman world. All of those letters written by Paul, except one, were written to address a specific problem that a church was having, a, a, a doctrinal problem, a heresy, had to call the people down for behavior, any number of things. All of his letters except one were written to address a problem. That one exception is what we call the book of Ephesians. As Paul heard about Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, he eventually made his way there and he spent three years, he made two trips actually, but he spent three years in Ephesus. And during that time, he spent three years pouring into that church solid discipleship. Because Jesus never said, grow your church membership roster. Jesus said, go and make disciples. And Paul spent three years working with that church. And eventually he wrote a letter to them from prison, actually applauding the church at Ephesus, the Ephesians, for their faithful witness as a church to Jesus Christ. The temptation through the centuries has been for all of us, for scholars and, and, and followers alike, to idealize the church at Ephesus. That to make it to be the standard by which all churches should be measured. Would we say, oh, that we could go back to the old days of the church when it wasn't so complicated, when there weren't so many denominations, when everybody got along? We tend to think that's in the Bible. Not so fast. A little bit later, Paul wrote another letter to a man named Timothy. Timothy at that time was the pastor of the church, or the leader, I guess we would say, at the church of Ephesus. And Paul cautioned him, Timothy, to tell the people to quit being so argumentative and that some had turned away from the faith. We flip to the end of the Bible to the book of Revelation, and, and a man named John was given a vision. At the beginning of that vision, he writes, citing seven specific churches, one of which was Ephesus. And he says to them, you have forsaken your first love. So no, the church at Ephesus wasn't flawless. It wasn't an ideal by which all churches should be measured, but it does offer us a way to dream and vision of an uncluttered, uncluttered church that may not be the church we want, but is the church we have. Sometimes the church we want impacts, hinders the impact of the world, impact of our church in the world that we have. Ephesians offers us an example of how God's Holy Spirit works in ways that we cannot see, think, or imagine to take the church we have 
and transform it into the church God wants. Which brings us to where we begin our series on Ephesians, in the beginning. And by in the beginning, I mean with God. Which is where Paul begins Ephesians, laying the foundation of who they are, of what the church is, and it's God's. In that particular passage that we read, if you had trouble understanding it, you're not alone. There are 201 words in that passage. In fact, for you English professors, it is one big, fat, long run on sentence. So if you had a little trouble, you're not alone. There's not an English professor alive today that wouldn't red ink all over Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. That's because Paul is trying to explain something that just doesn't have enough words. But there are seven words, seven verbs actually, in this passage. Paul is trying to get the people in Ephesus to realize that it is not about them. It is about God. And I believe echoing through the centuries today, Paul is trying to tell us church is not about you. Now that is a radical thought for we Americans, self-included, because we have a tendency to think things revolve around the way we think, feel, act, look, and sound. Paul is trying to say, it's not about you. And there are seven verbs in all these 201 words that talk about what God does. He says, God has blessed us in Christ. Blessed here doesn't mean God has given us material blessings or happiness or joy. It means God has magnified. God has increased our ability to understand God, increased our ability to dream God's dreams and see God's vision. It's not a blessing for us to keep. It's a blessing to be given away. He goes on and he says, God has chosen us. No one likes to be the one sitting on the bleachers in middle or high school when the basketball teams are being selected for PE. Anybody? Maybe that's just me. Nobody wants to be left out. What Paul is trying to get us to understand is that in God, no one is left out. God has chosen all of us. You are God's first choice goes on and he says, God has destined us for adoption. Not to be confused with the doctrine of predestination. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He is saying that before God laid the foundation of the world, God created you to be in relationship with God, to be a part of God's family. Those of you who have adopted children, you know what that's like. A child without a home suddenly finds a home. That's what Paul is saying God has done. You were once wanderers, but now you belong to God's family. All of us. And he says God has freely bestowed God's grace. Grace is not a get out of hell free card. It is not. Grace is action. Grace is a word that we struggle to understand in our 21st century environment, but grace is God's power in action. It's God's movement in you, around you, around us. It's the gift of God's presence in us, and it is the only reason 
that we are able to love each other. God gave it to us, that ability. He goes on and he says, God has lavished us with redemption. Oh, isn't that a beautiful word? Lavished. There is no end to God's forgiveness and redemption. God is not stingy with God's forgiveness. And he says God has made known the mystery of God's will. It's not that it was some big secret to begin with. It's just that we humans have a hard time understanding it. Paul is saying God has made a way for us to understand God's nature. When he sent Jesus, Jesus revealed God's character to us. And God has given even us the ability to experience the love of God. To be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Finally, Paul says, and God gathers us up. God is the one who gathers us, who calls us, who fills us, who forgives us, equips us, and yes, sends us. God is the one who does it all. Paul is laying the foundation for the church at Ephesus, telling them that being the church is not about them. It's about what God does in, through, and for them. Eugene Peterson, who translated the Bible translation we call the message, tells of a time early in his vocation as a pastor that he began to be disgusted with the scandalous idea of running the church as a successful business, complete with growth and marketing strategies, offering worship that pleased consumerism preferences, and trying himself to attain accolades or attaboys for eloquent sermons. He says, in the beginning, he fell prey to those continuously seductive messages, and he wondered, is that really what I gave my life for? He began to spend some time in the book of Ephesians, and he realized that's not what he's called to do. And he writes that what he realized he was called to do was to be a witness of the Holy Spirit's formation of a mixed bag of humanity we call a congregation. Broken, hobbled, crippled, sexually abused, emotionally unstable, passive and passive-aggressive neurotic men and women. Sound familiar? People at 50 or 60 who've been ignored, or excuse me, who've failed a dozen times and know they'll never amount to anything. People who have been ignored, scorned, and abused in a marriage in which they've been faithful. People living with children and spouses deep in addictions, lepers, blind, and deaf and dumb sinners. And also, yes, fresh converts excited on this new life. Spirited young people, energetic and eager to be guided in a life of love and compassion and mission and evangelism. A few saints who know how to pray and listen and endure. A considerable number who just show up. The hot, the cold, the lukewarm Christians, the half-Christians, the almost-Christians, the New Agers, the angry ex-Catholics, and the new converts. He says as he looked out in his congregation, he realized that he wasn't looking at a pious, romanticized, surface-deep facade of happy people. 
but a Holy Spirit-gathered community of broken and beautiful people called forth by the God of creation, the one who called a man out of the grave and said, you, you will be my witnesses. That, friends, is the church. And that is you. That is who we are. That is who we are called to be. And we will see in the coming weeks how being gods forms us into what we do. Which brings me back to the question that the young lady asked me last week. Can't I do this faith journey alone? You can put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. That is an individual decision. And yes, we can worship God out in nature. We can pray alone. We can read the Bible alone. We can do Bible studies alone. We can do all of that. And there is a place for that, and we will talk about that. But there's something powerful and mysterious. Some powerful, mysterious movement of the Holy Spirit in the gathered community of faith. That is what Ephesians is about. It is in the Spirit-filled, gathered community that we become whole and healthy and complete children of God. It is in the Spirit-gathered community that we move beyond belief in Jesus and become followers. Understanding that our lives and the church begin first and foremost with what God is doing rescues us from what we call smallness of mind. From thinking too small, too individually, too narrow-mindedly about our lives, about our world, and God's church. Notice I didn't say our church. Because friends, it's not ours. It's God's. And it's time we give it back to God. Will you pray with me? God, before the foundations of the world were laid, you knew that you would call forth a community of faith we call the body of Christ, that in some unseen, metaphysical, mysterious way, you unite us to be your church, your temple here on this earth, to be witnesses to the love, the grace, the forgiveness, and the redemption of Jesus Christ. Too often, Lord, we blow it. Too often, we get in the way of what you're doing. Lord, we offer ourselves individually to you, asking help us see where it is that we need to seek you first. We offer your universal church. Lord, it is hemorrhaging right now. But you are the one in control. Awaken your universal church. Awaken this, your local church we call First Farragut. Help us be powerful, mysterious Holy Spirit movement that you call us to be in this community and throughout the world. May we give it to you. May we give ourselves to you. 
In the name of Jesus, we ask and pray. Amen. Since we are in a series on Ephesians, we have an affirmation of faith that is from the book of Ephesians. It is based on Ephesians chapter 4, and you can go home and read that too. You've got about six or seven weeks to read the whole book of Ephesians. It's really cool. So I invite you to join me um, together for an affirmation of faith. I believe, there we go. have the words on the screen. There was one hope, one calling to which we are called. The hope in our lives is Jesus. There is one hope, one calling to which we are called. The call we must answer is God's. There is one faith, one hope, one Lord of us all. The Lord of our lives is Jesus. There is one baptism, one God the Father, one creator of all. The creator who calls us is God. We are one body, one family, one church, woven by the Spirit with the bonds of peace. With Christ's children throughout all this earth, we are one body in unity and love. Amen. When we gather in worship, we gather with the gift of our presence, our presence in worship to God. But we also worship in other ways of giving. We do that in serving, and many of you, several of you did that this week or half ago. I'm, I'm, I'm a week behind because I'm on vacation. In serving through Family Promise, weeding flower beds. We won't mention any names. A few folks who are giving of their time unselfishly, but we also give monetarily what we call God's tithes and our offerings. God's tithes meanings, means that everything we have is first and foremost a gift from God, and therefore it belongs first and foremost to God. Offerings are what we give above and beyond that. I invite you to worship as we are led, I believe, in a beautiful, another, uh, another song by Mason. I invite you to give. You may text give if you would like. Pray as we are led in music. And as you leave, for those of you in the building, there is a box at the back of the worship center. You're welcome to drop your tithe and offering off. But I invite you to continue in worship. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us next week as we continue our series from the book of Ephesians, A Church Built on Christ. See you then.